to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm your host, Miriam Anzvin, and I'm joined on this episode by my co-host, Dan Seligson. What's up, Dan? Disclaimers, Miriam. Let's hit it. Okay, disclaimer time. Listeners, we're going to be swearing a lot today. The content of our show is about losing your bleep as a parent. From now on, that bleep will be gone. You have 10 seconds to decide whether you're still going to listen because the next bleep won't be censored. Glad we got that uncomfortable shit out of the way. But let's also get this uncomfortable truth out of the way too. Becoming a parent changes you. The act of becoming the caregiver of a young human is life-altering. Your schedule, your interests, your priorities, and your sleep will be forever changed. For dads like me, your sense of humor becomes so stereotypically awful that it's frequently showcased in pop culture. And of course, your brain changes a lot. Yes, that once steady, predictable bowl of gray matter on a stick you got to know so well since the clouds of your teen years and party days in college have parted is forever altered by the arrival of children. Allegedly, with those changes come some wonderful things. That's what people say anyway. People who are parents say they experience the world in a new way. You get to share in someone else's joys and successes. There's a new understanding of the term unconditional love, which I understand myself from parenting a small Chihuahua Pitbull rescue dog. But let's face it, parenting can also be a huge pain in the butt. Kids, long before they learn to speak, have mastered the art of communicating with and or manipulating their parents. They know how to appease them, how to get stuff from them, and how to push their buttons. The older they get, the more sophisticated their manipulation becomes. And that's when parents sometimes lose it. The fact is, we will not change children, but we can improve how we respond to them, such as not losing our ever-loving minds. Operating under the theory that no one actually wants to lose their shit with their kids or with anyone else, Carla Nomberg, a Boston-area writer, speaker, and clinical social worker, has written a new guidebook for keeping your shit together. Because shockingly, parents are just human beings. And what? sometimes, yep, sometimes we need a guide to being calmer and happier when conducting the daily battle that is raising human children. This book is as honest and compassionate as it is pragmatic about helping you work through your shit, frankly, to be more present and positive as a parent. We are so thrilled to welcome Carla, our first ever Vibe of the Tribe return guest. This is her second appearance after her triumphant debut in episode 49, The Art of Apologizing, which, if I say so myself, is a must-listen. Carla's insight, advice, and compassion is the antidote to the stresses of parenting. Her book, How to Stop Losing Your Shit with Your Kids, is out August 20th and can be purchased online at the usual booksellers or at carlanomberg.com. Check out the show notes for more details. Carla, welcome back to the Vibe of the Tribe. Glad to be here. You've described this book as the book you were born to write. Tell us the inspiration for this book and what made you write this guide to parenting in this very funny and relatable style. Well, the inspiration for this book is I wanted to stop 
losing my shit with my kids. I mean, really, it came from a very personal journey. But as a clinical social worker, I, I also was fascinated by how this particular parenting challenge seems to be um, a struggle that many in our parenting generation are facing. And I would say probably every parenting generation since the history of time uh, has dealt with this. But I think something different about our generation that we don't talk about a lot is that our parenting cohort is one of the first to be thinking really intentionally and consistently about the importance of our relationship with our children. And that's not to say that parents in the past haven't cared about that. Of course they have. But we didn't have a generation of parenting experts and academics and research studies talking about the attachment relationship and how this impacts the future of our children and how it may impact their future relationships. And so I think we're sort of really freaking out a bit more about when we lose it with our kids than previous generations did. I think it was just seen as like a normal thing in the past, which of course it's very common, but we no longer want that. We no longer want to be that kind of parent. So that's the inspiration for the book. It's both personal and professional in terms of why I wrote it in this style. In all honesty, you know, I always read the New York times bestseller list. And if any of our listeners have been reading recently, you will see in the, in the how to and miscellaneous section, there's a ton of books with profanity in the title. And when I saw that, I was like, what we can, we can do that. That's the thing. That's Shit a sells. That's, thank you, sir. And so I was like, but, but you know, I, I don't swear in front of my kids and I don't know how I am able to curb that. I'm pretty proud of myself. That's an amazing skill. I I don't, I don't know where it came from. Um, Gift, but I do swear otherwise. And so um, I just, I really wanted this book to feel like a conversation and I wanted to feel not blaming or shaming or me wagging your my finger at, at another parent. I wanted it to feel like, Hey, we're all in this together and I have some thoughts and let me share them with you and hopefully they'll make sense. So I, I, um, the, the style of the book is so relatable and you are so real as a, as a parent um, that when I was reading the book, I, I thought about the intentionality of the way that you wrote it. Uh, it's in the first half of the book. Um, I felt you when you talked about your shit losing moments, <laughs> let's call it. And I, how terrible I felt when I had them myself. And, you know, for example, when I asked the kids to clean a room that looks like a bomb went off, you know, I'll, I'll ask them once and then I'll ask them the third or fourth and fifth time. And finally, I'll just lose my shit and I'll just start cleaning up, like throwing things the into the baskets clean. where they're supposed to go. I rage cleaning. Rage clean. And they just stare at me like there's an angry chimpanzee in the room and, and it's raging because someone took its food source. And, you know, they're like, they'll quietly start cleaning up. And I... I might have won a tiny little battle in that I got compliance, but at a terrible, terrible cost. Once this all started to sink in, when I read your book, I'm wondering, did you do this to me on purpose? Did you did you try to, uh, in a very detailed and, and relatable way, talk about the problem because we've all been there uh, so that we kind of have to break ourselves down to build ourselves back up? And I will just say that he came into the, to the Jewish Boston office and he had this look on his face and he's, he's like, some things are really hitting home. I felt sad and I oh. felt shame. But oh. No, no. In, no, it's in a, not in your a very fault. beneficial way. You need to have that. I'm not going to say come to Jesus, but you need to have a come to Hashem moment. Yes, come to Hashem moment. you recognize your failings as a parent and you begin to work on them and that's what the book I thought was helping me to do. So, 
first of all, I want to say the last thing I want in this book was for any parent to feel ashamed. And what I was trying to do it was is, just Dan. Yeah, I, I did. I I deserved it. I felt no, I felt no, my no, own shame. No, I could do a whole podcast on why shame is not useful. And I wanted parents to know, really deeply feel that they weren't alone. And that was the goal in sharing my story. Yes, I love talking about myself, which is why I'm happy to be here today. But <laughs> the whole point, I have a chapter in here where I share my story about like my triggers and why I was losing it, both in a big way, how I kind of fell apart from postpartum anxiety after my kids were born, but also in small moments where I was really losing my temper. And the reason I shared that is because I really wanted parents to know that we are in this together because I think connection is um, – it's like an anti-shame experience when you know you're not alone. Um, having said that, yeah, I did – you know, I was thinking about when I wrote this book, I, I am hoping to develop a relationship with my readers. I don't want them to just feel like I'm some person often wherever, like lobbing advice at them. I want them to feel like, you know – we're in this together. I want you to hear that I'm a real person who's really been through this with you. So yeah, that was intentional. Um, but what I would say to parents is honestly, if you are reading this book and at any point it makes you feel like frozen with shame and you can't even deal with it, put it down, stop reading. That is not what I'm going for. Um, but I thought you were going to, well, I, and you did. I'm like, she's going to fix this. I'm going to read this and figure out how to diagnose my triggers and then work on them. Yeah. That and was the goal. Yeah, I didn't want to stop reading. Oh, I wanted, good. I wanted to keep reading. Yeah, that that crisis happened sort of towards the beginning. <laughs> yeah, it was all kind and of yes. like. Then he kept reading, and he felt better. Good. The felt better is what we're going for. And you know, it's true. Like if you think about what happens in therapy, because I'm a clinical social worker, is that often you do feel a little worse before you feel better, because it's like, oh, you know, it's like cleaning out your closet. You know, when you start and you go into your closet and you have to pull everything out, and then you look around and you're like, oh my god, there's like piles of clothes and shoes and purses or whatever goes in men's closets. I don't even belts, ties, whatever. It's everywhere. And it's a huge, huge mess. But then you start to put it back together and it's better. Right. So just from the title itself, uh, one who maybe does not yet have children was considering it. <laughs> you know, there's a certain image of parenting that we see on social media where everything seems so amazing and, and loving and wonderful all the time. But this book is very real, and it describes vividly how difficult parenting can be at times. And before we jump into the strategies for avoiding shit loss, can you tell us three great things about becoming a parent and parenting? I love this question. I'm so glad you asked it. So I spent some time thinking about this this morning, and I can only th speak from my own experience because I feel like everybody has hopefully many things they love about parenting. And to, to listeners out there, if you're listening to me right now and you're like, look, there's literally nothing. This is horrible. Um, it's I, look, I hated it when people said this to me, but I'm going to say it to you now because it's true. You're in a phase and you might be in a particularly hard phase, but children change and this phase is going to grow into something different and there will be things that are better and things that are worse. But if you're in a bad place right now, it's going to get better. Um, having said that, the things I think that have been particularly amazing for me about being a parent is one, my kids are hilarious and I, I actually enjoy being with them. And it was, so they're um, nine and 10 and a half right now. And it was not always this way. Like I am not a baby toddler person. It was really challenging for me in those stages. So I don't want listeners to think that I'm one of those people that just constantly loves being with children. There is a reason I'm not like a preschool or kindergarten teacher. No, no, sir. Um, not my jam, but right now, like with my kids, I'm actually enjoying the people they are becoming. And I, I like spending time with them. 
Um, also, I think being a parent has really challenged me to grow and understand more about myself and how to take care of myself and how to not lose my shit and, you know, figuring out what's really important to me and how I want to spend my time. Um, so it's really on a very surprising, I didn't, I didn't know this was part of parenting, but on a very personal and surprising level, uh, figuring out kind of what's working for me, what's not, who do I want to be in this world and how do I want to parent these kids and figuring out my challenges. Um, and then, you know, there's this sense of tradition. What do we say? Lador Vador, like that is actually incredibly meaningful to me teaching my children. Here's where you came from. Here's who's been in your family all along. These are the traditions and um, experiences and holidays we've been celebrating, you know, for generations. I I am surprised by how much that means to me. Yeah. And it's beautiful, but it really is. So and, you know, I was raised in a family where family was a priority. I mean, my my grandmother, who was a completely um, cultural Jew, she was not interested in religion at all, would say that her family is her religion. And so that was that was how I was raised. And, and so that's important to me. And nine and ten is the, at least in my experience, the dawn of sarcasm in a child, and it becomes it's very funny. As Are they you test, telling me as they test Noah sarcasm. hasn't hit sarcasm? She's four really, and she's got it. Really. I feel, but there's just this amazing ability to just deadpan at you that I love. They are you know, hilarious. Nine, ten-year-old, it's great. They are hilarious. Yes, it's great. So the idea of losing one's shit—it sounds funny, but it comes at a cost, a physical cost. Mm. What does it do to a person's body to be that stressed out? Why is it important that we stop losing our shit for our own sanity and our own physical well-being? Yes. So we know that stress levels go up when you lose your shit. And the way I describe it in the book is it's very much a a neurological reaction. Um, something triggers us. And by triggers, what I mean, the you know, if I want to get all really technical on you guys, which I will do for a minute, when we are triggered, my definition is it means we're more likely to lose our shit. So very clinical definition there. Um, But what I mean on sort of a neurobiological level is that our body has launched into what I refer to as fight, flight, freeze, or freak out mode. So something about the experience feels threatening on some level. And that can even be spilled milk. Because if as a child, your parents lost it with you every time you spilled the milk, now you're back in the parent-child relationship again, and even though you're the parent in control this time, it can still trigger those same fear responses. Oh, gosh, milk has been spilled and something bad is going to happen. And so then we end up launching into what is this response going to be? Well, most of us don't physically fight our kids. Um, most of us don't run away from our kids, although I have been known to lock myself in the bathroom it's from time so to time. Tempting. It's a thing that happens. <laughs> well, I was um, going to say flight is such a tempting oh, response. Uh, and let's be clear. There are some parents who do that. We all know stories of parents who either physically really do leave or flee into drugs and alcohol or mm-hmm. some kind of, you know, state of intoxication, which, um, I would just say if you're struggling with that, please know that you're not alone and that help is available. And it sounds like such a cliche, but there are a lot of people hopefully in your life you can talk to. Um, but that's a very real problem. We know, especially with the opioid crisis, yeah. it's 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 happening. You're not alone. So there's fight, there's flight. Some parents do kind of freeze and check out, um, especially folks who have a trauma history. That's a pretty common thing, kind of disassociating. Um, but for many parents, what they do is they freak out, which is kind of losing their shit. And so that is like an internal stress response. When you think about what we learned in high school biology about what happens to our bodies, um, the stress, our body is flooded with stress hormones. Our heart beats faster. Um, our pupils dilate. Uh, you know, we start taking kind of more and more shallow breaths because essentially you're getting into this 
physical mode to respond physically. But this evolved at a time when we were responding to like a woolly mammoth. Right. You need to run away. Right. But now we don't need that physical response. We need sort of a calmer response, but we aren't wired that way. Um, And over time, that kind of stress response can lead to all sorts of ongoing health problems. You know, and we all have that kind of stress response from time to time. But if you're having it on a daily basis, we know that that's not good for your body. It messes with your sleep. It can lead to increased high blood pressure, you know, heart problems, all these like problems we know uh, with increased stress. So on that level, it's not good for you. And it's not good for your kids because they have the same kind of response, too. And that's especially bad for their developing bodies. Having said that, I also want to remind parents who are like driving the car right now and freaking out about this. This is how most of us grew up and most of us are okay. So yeah. like this is most not of us. Right. Most of us. Yeah. And we're okay enough. <laughs> yeah, you're right? Right, you're right. So please don't be like, oh, God, I've ruined my child forever. No, you probably have not. Um, now, it's important that we stop losing it, partially because it's good to not put our bodies into stress, freak out, you know, mode all the time um it makes parenting easier and more fun when we don't lose it uh our relationships with our children are going to be stronger and as dan said earlier you know sometimes when we lose it um we do get some amount of compliance for like in the immediate moment because our kids are scared of us but in the long term it's actually not an effective parenting strategy like you're unlikely to get what you want yeah um so that's sort of some of my initial thoughts that's when insurrections get planned yes that's when kids are like, you know, you start yelling at them and they just sort of look at you and walk away. And then once right. they're teenagers and they can leave the house on their own, they're like, peace out. I'm not going to stick around for this. Right. And then you got nothing. Yeah. Can't really blame them. Yeah. So in the book, you talk about, quote, burps, which stands for <laughs> button reduction practices. Can you talk about some of these practices and how they make us more present in the moment and remove distractions and stress from our lives? Yes. So before we talk about the button reduction practices, which, by the way, I am particularly proud of that acronym. It's a beautiful acronym. You have some acronym. great acronyms. This in book this has book. some amazing I mean, buy it for the acronyms. acronyms alone. Yes. So uh, what I want to say about this particular, like these acronyms, is that I was I, I try in the book to make it funny because I want parents to not get lost in this like shame spiral and taking themselves too seriously because I feel like that doesn't help. And when we can laugh about these things. Um, not in a mean self-deprecating way, but in a like, oh, well, life is ridiculous, you know, kind of way. It makes parenting easier. So I tried to be funny. So button reduction practices. First, I want to talk about our buttons. So basically, I use buttons as kind of a metaphor for our nervous system, right? We all have these buttons. And at times, they can become very large and very bright and very sensitive. And what does a kid do when they see a button? Push it. They push it. They push the crap out of it, right? Or like a children's museum. Yes. <laughs> like a giant <laughs> Of course, I would like to say that I walked into the recording studio here and Dan has this like panel of bright buttons They're in front so of They're so bright. And I was like, I want to push all of them. <laughs> so it's not just We'll buttons. take a selfie with this at some point. <laughs> like it's a very beautiful pushing panel. Pushing the buttons. But so, all these do are sound effects. That's So um, it's totally fine to push these. Awesome. So um, a lot of parenting books, I think, really focus on getting our kids to stop pushing. But I, in all honesty, I think that's pretty unlikely to happen because that's not what kids do. They push our buttons for a million reasons. They push them because they're curious or they're anxious or they want to connect with us and they don't know how because they're immature or, you know, it's just sort of what kids were wired to do because it's a way to stay in connection with us. It's not the way we would prefer, but they're learning. 
And it's a very slow process for them to learn. So yes, we're going to keep teaching them how to stop pushing buttons, but I don't want to spend the next like five years losing my shit while I wait for my kids to learn how to stop pushing my buttons. So our job and really the frame for the book is how do we make our own buttons smaller and dimmer and less sensitive so when a kid comes at us, they have to push multiple times before we lose it. And it gives us a little more space. And the best example I have of that is years and years ago. Um, okay, it wasn't that many years ago, but the girls were young. <laughs> I went on a four-day silent meditation retreat. And this is not a thing I've been able to do since then. And I realize it's not practical for most parents. But when I came back, I was like the freaking Dolly Mama. I had no buttons. <laughs> like I was amazing. They were coming at me with everything. And I was like, yes, my child. You know, it was awesome. But of course, it lasted like... 15 hours, you know, it doesn't last forever, but that's why in the book I have all these practices that I call the burps or the button reduction practices that, um, it's really, honestly, it's self care. And I know some people really bristle at that phrase. I kind of do too. So in the book, I call it shit. You have to do if you don't want to lose your shit. And it's really practical. I like that term a lot better. Yeah, me too. There an acronym for that? I couldn't. That's why right, I yeah. had to come up with the burps because yeah. the acronym for that does not work. It's yeah. like I'm trying to think really that one through. It's no, really confusing. No. Yes. So um, basically what these are about is reducing the level of stress in our lives and the physical stress in our bodies so that we're not walking around sort of freaked out and worked up and, and, and jacked up in this giant red glowing button that our kids want to push. And the reality is this is um, effective for everyone, not just parents, right? So if you find at work that you're losing it with your colleagues or your boss or your dog or your parents or your aunt or whoever it is, or the random guy on the highway, you know, chances are you could use some of my burps. So on this issue of burping, you spent some additional time in the book or some additional pages focusing specifically on smartphones and social media and the harm that they can cause when a parent is trying to multitask and looking at an idealized version of everyone else's life on social media. Uh, what's the damage that this does to us and how does this increase our potential for shit loss? Yeah, I, I think that based on my personal experience and my professional experience working with parents, I would say smartphones and social media are one of the, the biggest triggers we face these days for a few different reasons. Um, one is uh, smartphones allow us to multitask. So this is a real double-edged sword, especially for people who work. Because for many of us, we can show up at work late or leave work early or have a little more flexibility to be at a doctor's appointment or a game or stay home with a sick kid as long as we're available to answer texts or emails. And when we are trying to do that work stuff and trying to manage a child, it just increases our stress so much that we end up losing it. And the definition of stress that I use in the book is the belief or perception that we can't handle whatever's going on. And whether or not that belief or perception is true, once that starts to sort of manifest and our, at that point our buttons are getting really big and then literally the kid, all they have to do is show up in the room and even ask for something very reasonable and we lose it with them because we're partially thinking about the work and the text message from the boss or whatever it is. So that's one reason why I think smartphones in particular – um, really increase the likelihood we're going to lose it with our kids. But social media, man, for so many reasons. It's the worst. It's the worst. So first of all, I mean, this idea that there are parents out there 
who are like loving every minute of parenting, getting it all right, that their kids are, you know, while they're off running a marathon, their kids have the piano recital and then they show up with the perfectly frosted cupcakes for the this and the that. And, you know, they have the perfect summer vacation. I mean, right now we're recording this in July and I'm, my social media is filled with images of like happy children, you know, in jumping. Paris. Oh, yeah. Children in Paris, or like traveling with children like, is so great. It's so fun. I love it. It's not stressful at all. Mike, I just rolled my eyes. The I like rolled my eyes so hard they almost fell out of my. Did head. you hear it? So, and there's no, there's very few pictures of like the kid who's throwing a fit because they don't want the sunscreen to be put on, or they right. got sand in their snack, or whatever it is. Which you know, I feel like when we go to the beach, that's a huge part of the experience is dealing with fussy kids. Um, and so there's that comparison where we feel less than and we feel like other parents are somehow doing this right and have figured out we haven't. And it's all BS, of course. Like It's just curated. So it's that so it, curated. So it looks like it's fine and everything's going great and everybody looks great and everyone's happy. And then – And it's all a lie. Such a lie. And thank God for the parents who will tell the true story. I am so grateful for my friends who call me up and are like, oh, my God, you wouldn't believe what happened yesterday. I mean, that's a lifesaver to me, those stories. And that's why I try to tell them too. It's, um, you know, it's fascinating. It's the exact reverse of journalism. I went to journalism school and we talked about, one of my professors said, there is no reporter assigned to an airport to report on every plane that lands successfully. That's right. But the first mm. time one crashes, we'll all show up. Social media is the exact opposite. There is no one reporting the terrible things going on in their lives and with photos of their children. They're only telling you the great things that happen and you become this person who just consumes other people's images of joy without knowing anything else about the context of their lives. So you just think everyone is happy but you. And it's a, it's a tough thing to, to spend your day looking at, yep, but that's what people are doing and parents are doing it. It's so tough and it's happening at a particularly interesting point in time where, you know, we say it takes a village to raise a child. And we talk about the idea that other people there ideally are to support us. But I think part of the village too, is that other people are there to give us a reality check and we don't have that anymore. And one of the reasons this happened is because of air conditioning. When air conditioning came along, we all closed our windows. And when we closed our windows, we couldn't hear our neighbors yell at their kids anymore. <laughs> this is actually, you know, a I very never actually thing. thought about that. We studied this in one of my psych classes wow. and I was like, Whoa, mind blown. That is, yeah. yeah. Wow. So, okay. I mean, I'm so grateful. We live on a street with a lot of kids and the kids are out there a lot and I get to see other parents snap at their children. And I'm like, thank you. Thank you so <laughs> yeah. much for yelling at your kid in front of me. This is a gift. So, um, the other reason I think that social media is particularly harmful is we are constantly seeing articles um, and advice about how we should be parenting and it's confusing and it's contradictory and you never know what to believe and it makes you think you're doing it wrong. And I, I know this is a little rich coming from me cause I'm a person who writes parenting books, but I mean, I remember, you know, my, one of my daughters has asthma and I was constantly struggling with whether or not I should put a humidifier in her room and the amount of time I spent reading the research and like trying, and it was like mind blowing. And I was like, I'm screwing this up. I'm not making the right choice. And then you see other people. I mean, I remember reading an article once saying that if your child doesn't, isn't patient, then what you should do is bake a cake and leave it on the counter and not let the child eat it. And that is how they will develop patience. I don't know if that sounds like a good idea. I don't bake. 
at all. Yeah, it's a great point. So like, I was like, what? Know, and, so I, and I was in this like fog of postpartum anxiety. And I remember being like, oh my God, I have to learn how to bake. My child will never become patient if I don't learn how to bake. That's insane. That's going down the internet rabbit <laughs> right? hole of insanity. And yep. when you're an anxious parent, that kind of insanity can really grab you. So I think the endless flow of information is actually not helpful. And that's another um, problem with kind of social media is that all those articles show up. And the yeah. last one is that, like, let's be honest, the news right now is terrible. Yes. And it used to be in the good old days, which were not so good, but they had one better thing going for them. You could sit down at like five or six o'clock and watch the nightly news. You could read a newspaper. You could turn on the radio if you wanted to, but they just repeated the same thing over and over again. There was no option for 24-hour news. There was no option for like scrolling through and getting the, right. you know, uh, constant news updates. Unless you are, I don't know, the president of the United States or like running a news network, you don't need constant news updates. You don't need to know what changed between this morning and tonight. And so the constant exposure to news is making us very stressed out and likely to lose it with our kids. Yeah. So I want to talk about something that I think feeds into this, and that's mommy shaming on the internet. For example, every time uh, Chrissy Teigen posts a photo that includes her child, a zillion internet, quote unquote, experts pop up. They're just commentators from fans, quote unquote, fans. Anybody in the net pops up and tells her, oh, you're holding the kid wrong. Um, you shouldn't feed them like that. Uh, they're wearing the wrong thing. Their sunscreen is wrong. Their hair is wrong. Like every criticism that could be lobbed at her is sent her way. And um, they give her, you know, unsolicited, weird, condescending, faux, new age advice. And luckily she is herself and can deal with it because she's awesome. Um, but I imagine this happens on a smaller, less celebrity level between like peer groups of moms and their circles of friends or relations who think they and they alone know the best way to raise a child. So how should parents deal with shit they get from other parents? Yeah, I call this mom-splaining. Mom-splaining. It's like mansplaining, but yeah. mom-splaining. Um, yeah, this is a thing. And I think some parents do it um, from really a place of like generosity. They're trying to be helpful and they don't recognize that their advice is not helpful. Mm. Um, and some parents do it because they're deeply insecure and anxious. And this is like what comes out when they're in that place. And I've done it myself from a place of intense anxiety. Um, and once that got better, I find that I don't tend to do it as much. Um, so what I would say is if this is happening to you online, uh, spend less time online and filter your friendship like circles very carefully. And if there are people that keep showing up in your feed who are saying this stuff, even if you think they're coming from a good place, unfriend them or unfollow them or do whatever you have to do. And then in real life, um, you know, I feel like one of the things I talk about in the book is is your support system and different sort of levels of support and who the people in your life can be that are supportive. Um, and if you are hanging out with people who you come away from hanging out with them regularly feeling bad about yourself or yeah. feeling confused or doubting your parenting, these are not your people. Mm -hmm. And if you can get away from them, you should do that. And it's okay. It doesn't mean they're bad people. It just means they're not the right crew for you. Um, and I talk about this with parents all the time. And sometimes you can't really avoid it because they're who you see it like pick up every day at school or something. And then you just try not to engage, like smile, say hi. And, you know, you can do the like mumble and walk away. That's a strategy I use. Oh, it's so nice to see you. Oh, I'm going to walk <laughs> away. Can you wear headphones? That's what I do often at school pickups and stuff. You're going to get just, criticized yeah, for that. I know. I know. But you I can't probably hear it. am currently being criticized for that now. But. As long as you take, as long as they see you take them off. Oh, but oh, you yeah, know, eventually I do. But here's the thing. If you're wearing the headphones, you can't hear the criticism. Yeah. yeah. So who cares? Yeah. Right. 
That's the thing. Look, if you have people in your life who know you and know your family and can give you advice when you go ask for it, because P.S. Nobody likes unsolicited advice. That's just a thing. Nobody likes it, even when you're right. Hi, husband. Acts. Are you listening? Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> he would say the same thing about me. Um, because, and people love to give unsolicited advice. We love it. Everybody loves it. Nobody wants it. So that's a thing. Um, and uh, so you just have to find a way to get some headspace from it. I have a question about uh, shit loss and age of children. And there's an old saying, I'm sure you know this, small children, small problems, big children, big problems. And from the standpoint of someone who is trying to help people reduce their shit loss in parenting, how do strategies change as your children go from being rambunctious, fun-loving young children to impassive, constantly irritated teenagers? <laughs> so first of all, I have to say that saying, the small children, small ch- problems, big children, big problems, I can't stand it. I it feel doesn't like, seem accurate. Well, and I think about my friends whose kids were diagnosed with like very serious illnesses when they were little or whose kids have not yet been diagnosed with attentional issues and the parents don't know it, yet know how to deal with it. Or guess what? When you're not sleeping every night for months, that's a big problem. Mm-hmm. So I I feel like I, this. I think it's a grandparent thing oh. to say that. <laughs> you know, I Maybe think, it is. You don't remember what you were like as a teenager. Little kids are great. I yeah. remember hearing it oh. from grandparents. Maybe that's who it is. And but yeah, and I get it because like, you know, when kids get to be teenagers, you have to worry about sex and drugs and all that stuff. And that does feel like big problem. It's all big problems. Mm-hmm. So anyways, on that cheery note, um <laughs> here's what I would say. Because in the book I'm really trying to focus on the parents and their responsibility for their own buttons and not on the kids. Um, I would say that how do the strategies and challenges really depend on the parents' experience because and and how they feel about the different stages of their children. So for me, I had a very hard time when my kids were babies and toddlers. That stage did not work for me. And we could, if we wanted to, trace it back to what was going on in my childhood when I was that age, because often parents get stuck or have a hard time when their kids are the age that the parent was when they struggled the most. Mm. So if your parents got a divorce when you were 10 years old, when your kids become 10 years old, that might be a particularly challenging time for you. And you might not even put it together in your head, but all of a sudden you know like, oh, this is hard. So um, for me, I'm I'm hoping, and we'll see. I mean, my kids are turning and becoming tweens, as I'm constantly reminded. <laughs> um, yeah, there are some things they do that are mildly irritating, but in general, it feels easier for me to manage than sort of the inconsistency and unpredictability of the early years. So I think it really depends on the parent which stages feel easier or harder, because we all know those parents who like love babies. Weird. <laughs> I want nothing to do with stinky teenagers. So what I would say is that it's you got to keep staying focused on taking care of yourself and what that looks like. And in some ways, that's easier in the teenage years because you don't have to be constantly attentive to your child. Like you could. Right. They can lift a, up their head. Right. <laughs> yes. And feed themselves. <laughs> yes. They can lift up their head. That is the thing that gets so much easier. Um, but when you can, for example, if you need to go for a walk and get some fresh air, you could actually leave your teen in the house and go do that. I can't wait. You know what I can't wait for? I can't for? wait till I can walk out of the house. I can't wait to send really snarky, inappropriate text messages to my kids. I cannot wait. I'm so excited for that. That's an exciting time. You're going to be using the wrong form. Like they're going to be on some app that we haven't even heard of. That's and you'll right. be doing it on, you know, Gchat. They'll be like, what's Gchat? They won't, they'll make That's fun right. of you. Be, Look what she, she wrote me at Gchat. 
know. And I'm going to be like, on, if like, you don't Snapchat answer me. version 9000. If you don't answer me, I'm going to show up at your school with a bullhorn and start <laughs> yelling at you how much I love you. Did you guys see that Spider-Man cartoon? It was amazing. Um, so, yeah. No, I think it really is about figuring out how to take care of yourself and what that's going to look like is might be different for you in every stage of your child's life, which is fun that once you figure out what works, you have to change it. That's a really fun thing about parenting. So your two daughters are in this book a lot. Naturally, it's about you as a parent. So they do feature in it. So what do you think their perceptions will be about this guide later on down the road when they maybe read it? Ooh, what do you think? So I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. So they know all about my books. They know exactly what this book is about. Um, they are allowed to read this book if they want to. It's on the shelf. Awesome. Um, yeah. And we talk a lot about what I wrote about. And we talk about when mommy loses it. And they will say, yeah, mommy yells at us sometimes. And they, my, my older daughter, who's very intuitive, will say, mommy, you seem kind of cranky. Have you exercised today? Ah! Oh, they'll start giving you tips to reduce your burps. Yeah. No, increase my burps. Your, your, reduce my triggers. Increase, reduce your and, triggers. And of course, what I want to say to her, like, I want to bite her head off. Like, have but, you worked out today? Yeah. Well, you, did you exercise today? Yeah. But the truth is she's right. And so for me, it's about taking a big, deep breath and saying, yeah, you're right. Um, and so I'm like, I'm going to go exercise. And so this is an ongoing conversation in our house that I'm really transparent with the kids about. And I... Um, talk to them about sleep and I talk to them about why I exercise and I talk to them about why mommy needs time alone. And I talk to them about why um, I try really hard to do one thing at a time. And that if I'm making dinner and they come at me with a question, I'll say to them, you know, I need you to hold that question until when I'm done. Mm. And that's a thing that we've been, I've been really training myself and training them on for years um, so that I don't feel constantly like encroached upon. And it's, it's an ongoing process. I have an eight year old and we're, we're on year eight of that process. Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. it's a long process. Oh, I think it's a lifelong process. It's a lifelong process. Um, and, you know, they know that sometimes I need space from them and sometimes they need space from me. Mm. So that's a thing we talk about, too, that that's that's normal in families. It's OK to want space away from the people you love. It actually sounds like this is super healthy for them to like know this stuff and like it's positive and it'll help them in life, not just parenting, but just all aspects of life. How to not lose your shit. I think that's awesome. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, most of us, I certainly grew up in a family where we didn't talk about this. Mm -hmm. And I think most people don't talk about it. Like there's some big explosion and then um, you just don't talk about it. And then at some point you start talking to each other again. Yeah. That's, that's what it was like when I was a kid. And I try to talk to them. Like if I lose it, I apologize. And then we'll talk about what happened. Well, I got really stressed because of X, Y, and Z. Um, and I mean, the thing that you want to think about when you have these conversations with your kids is their developmental stage and what can they handle? Cause you don't want to say to like a six year old, well, I'm afraid I'm going to lose my job. <laughs> like that's not helpful. They right. they they can't understand and handle that. That's and then how will we stay in the house? Right, right. and Jeez. then you know we might oh have to God. move in with Grandma Nelly and oh. uh, you know like that doesn't work. Oh. So you want to sort of moderate it to what the, you think the kids can understand. Um, the other thing to keep in mind, and the reason I like to talk to my kids about this, is kids are completely egocentric. They think the world revolves around them, and it's normal. That's completely developmentally appropriate. But the problem is, if you are a parent who's losing it all the time. And your triggers may have nothing to do with them. It could be, you know, financial concerns. It could be work problems. It could be being a part of the sandwich generation and trying to take care of your parents and your kids. It could be chronic pain that you have that they don't even know about. But a kid is going to assume it's their fault. 
And so when I say to them, the reason I snapped at you is because I didn't sleep last night because, you know, the cat was up vomiting all night or whatever it is, I'm, I'm offering them a better narrative right. than the one they're likely to hold, which is this is my fault. So I don't know what the kids are going to think, but we certainly talk about it. So if nothing else, it won't be a surprise. Right. Yeah. So I'm not a parent to a human child, just a dog child, as we've discussed on the podcast before. However, after reading this book, I did start to notice I was doing some things with Sansa the dog that you advise not to do with a child, like offering her too many options. And of course, she doesn't speak English anyway, so I don't know what I'm attempting to do. But I ask her, do you want to go out or do you want to go to bed? Do you want this kibble or some slightly different kibble? And I ask her these things as if she knows what I'm talking about. And then I get frustrated when she just stares at me with her intense little eyes. And I realize, wow, if this is how I am with a dog and it's driving me mad, just how imagine how challenging this is for people with human children. And I personally don't have any plans to have human children, but what advice uh, might you have specifically for folks who aren't parents yet, but might be in the future? I think your dog sounds like a two and a half year old child from that description. Yeah. Perhaps the world does revolve around her. But did you ever offer your dog perhaps a slightly off shaped piece of kibble and the dog laid down on the floor and started screaming? (laughs) Well, she, no, what she does not to take this off road too much is she if she doesn't like what's in the bowl she'll look at me and just flip it over oh she's a two and a half year old that's a two-year-old yeah there you go yeah absolutely and then i have to pick it up and put it back in the bowl but then she won't eat it because it's been on the floor so i have to throw it out and start again there's a a lot going on here that we can unpack in a different (laughs) session (laughs) so uh, here's what i would say to people who aren't yet parents but might be in the future enjoy your life and don't worry about this now Mm. seriously there's there's good advice there is no I don't know, Dan, if you have a different perspective, but at least in my experience, there is nothing really you can do to prepare for this. Like you can read all the books. You can go babysit your nieces and nephews. You could go like, you know, sit in a park and watch children and observe them. Although, But not in a creepy way. I was going to say that might be a little creepy. um, So don't just, I don't know, don't do that. Maybe Maybe don't do that part. Yeah. Yeah. But like you can do everything and when your kids show up, you will be completely unprepared for it. Mm. And all of a sudden you will realize there are buttons that you didn't know you had and they're pushing them because you don't know those buttons are there until your kids push them. And it will bring out amazing sides of you, beautiful, loving, incredible sides of you that you didn't know existed. And it will bring out the worst in you. Um, the rage monster, like the person with zero patience and endless frustration. And there's nothing you can do to prepare for this. Mm. And so all I would say is enjoy your life and start taking care of yourself. Like, yeah. I guess the healthier you are, maybe. Everything you said is so true. And and you don't you're the person who tears up at Google ads. Like your whole your brain <laughs> yes. your brain changes when you have children. You tear it completely up at changes. Google ads? Yeah, it's happened a couple oh, times. Oh, so I'm with I, you. I'm with you. That was embarrassing to <laughs> no, say. No, no, no. I'm Let's I, leave it in there. Uh, yes. Let's leave it in there, Jesse. <laughs> that was uh, funny. No, I, I, I totally agree with you. And I think the the advice that I would give people is that um if you have a list of things that you want to do, like go to Peru and, you know, <laughs> go skydiving and, you know, I can't do it. that. I have a dog. Yeah. Just, you, you want to explore, you know, base camp at Everest. No, don't get, do that. Too many them, people are doing that. Get them. No, base camp, not the song. Oh, okay. Uh, get those things do done. It. Do it. Then have kids. That's right. Mm. But That's once right. you have kids, you have to kind of change your expectations of what you can actually do for a while. If yeah. you want to like drink a whole cup of coffee before it gets cold, yeah. just start doing that now mm. and enjoy every sip. Just be like, I am at the bottom of this coffee. It's still warm. This is amazing. Pro tips. That's right. For all of us non-parents out there, drink the coffee now. Well, I started with a question about how the book sort of um, 
had me do a little self-examination. It wasn't always great, but it was important. And as I mentioned, the book changed me almost immediately. In fact, after I read the first section and saw myself and I didn't love what I saw, I came home and I talked to my wife about it. And it almost immediately made a difference just getting that out there. And I feel like once a person has read this, um, what you need to do is maintain like you can't keep the book with you at all times. You can't open up to the page I mean, that you tells could. you, you know, you, you could. Um, but what are some tips for uh, maintaining the learnings that are in this book? Yeah, that's that's a great question, and um, I'm, I'm glad this book was helpful. That was my goal. So thank you for saying that. Um, if I was going to leave our listeners with one tip that I feel like is like the the gateway tip that's going to make everything else possible, honestly, it's self compassion, and I talk about this in the book. Um, but that is one of sort of the, the basic practices and really a way of moving through the world, whether you're a parent or not, that may literally makes everything else possible. And for most parents, we walk through our lives thinking I'm a terrible parent. I'm screwing this up. I'm messing up my kids for life. All the other parents that I see on Instagram or wherever are doing better than I am. And not only does that feel awful, but when that's constantly running through your head, and most of us don't even realize it's running through our heads, um, there's just there's nowhere to go from there. There's no room for like change or growth or new habits. It's just like, oh, I suck. I guess I'll just go shove some chocolate in my mouth. Like there's there's no space. And so when you can start to change your perspective and have forgiveness for yourself and have some kindness and say things to yourself like, well, parenting is hard. It's hard for everyone. None of us get it perfectly. And that's okay in that you can almost feel more space and like, oh, well, if it's hard for everyone, maybe I can do this. Maybe there's some room. And researchers have actually done studies on self-compassion. This is amazing that self-compassion is a highly effective way to change habits, whether you're trying to stop smoking or stick to a diet or whatever it may be, that when you can have a lot of kindness and forgiveness for yourself, you're more likely to change the habit that you're struggling with, which blows my mind when I think about it. And it, it's cross it, it, across so many different subjects. In fact, I remember someone, a friend of mine, who was quitting smoking, and <clears throat> he had a cigarette, and he immediately went back to smoking. A couple months later, he decided to quit again, and he said, you know what? I had a mistake. I had a puff of a cigarette. I put it out, and I said, you know, I made a mistake. Let me keep going with my quit. That's right. If you decide that you have failed, then failure is something that you will continue to do. You basically said, all right, I, I can't quit smoking because I just had one. I'm going to That's right. keep smoking. It's a huge, yeah, it's a huge game changer. And uh, for a lot of parents I work with, uh, I talk about it like speaking a different language. Because when you first start to talk to parents about like, could you think some positive thoughts about yourself or some kind thoughts? They're like, mm, no, I, the, like the words won't come. I cannot produce the words because no one's ever spoken them to you. So how do you speak a language? If no one's ever sat down and said, actually, you're a great parent, you know, and here's, you know, and parenting is hard and you're still a great parent. And so I say to them, what would you say to a friend? What would you say to a friend who calls you up and is like, oh, my God, I totally lost my shit with my kids and it was horrible and this and that. You wouldn't say, yeah, you suck. Here's a bottle of wine. Like, that's not a thing you would do to a friend. So why would you do it to yourself? We would say it's really hard and you're still a great mom or dad or parent. So can you start saying that to yourself? And it really is a practice. It's something that the more we do it, we'll get better at it. And then it will make everything else so much easier. And from there, it's really just 
you know, going through the book, getting really honest with yourself about your triggers, the things in your life that set you on edge um, and figuring out, are there triggers you can remove from your life? That's not that, in all honesty, most of the time we can't. Sometimes if there's a really toxic relationship or friendship we can get out of, um, you know, we don't keep noisy toys in our house. Like all our toys get batteryectomies the minute they come in because (laughs) noise is a major trigger for me. Um, So if there are triggers like sleep deprivation, if that's a trigger for every single person on the planet, right? So if there's something you can do about that, you should do it. And then the other triggers, it's about managing them. You know, can you put up boundaries with difficult people that you have to stay in relationship with? Um, uh, I'm trying to think of some other ones, but also from there, the, the button reduction practices are there to reduce your stress, take you off the edge so that you're less likely to lose it. So I get exercise every single day now. I'm not training for a marathon. Sometimes it's just a walk outside, but that's enough for me that I'm much less likely to lose with my kids. So that's, that's what I would say, but really self-compassion is the place to start. It's so much, I mean, there's so much great advice to unpack in this book. I really, I, I can't recommend yes, it. Yes. It's a lot of, it's a lot of fun, this book, even for non-parents. I appreciate it. very that. helpful. Yeah. For anybody who doesn't want to lose their temper yeah, as yeah. often in any Just situation. Just be cool and keep their cool. That's right. Yeah. So Carla, thank you so much for joining us today in the Vibe of the Tribe. It's, it's been great having you here. here. Yeah. It's really fantastic to be here. Thank you so much. again to Carla for joining us and thank you listeners for tuning in. Remember to subscribe to the Vibe of the Tribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and tune in. You can also email us at podcast at jewishboston.com with your comments, feedback, and ideas for future topics and guests. And follow us on at Jewish Boston on social media. Thanks as always to our editor, Jesse, and our composer, Ryan. Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from Beeping. This podcast has been brought to you by Beeps. Beeps. How to stop losing your shit with your kids. Stop. If we're lucky and we really fuck up, he puts it on at the end of the podcast. Yes, there's bleepers at the end. Or bloopers at the end. Bloopers. Bleeper bloopers. Bloopers. There, you just did one. I just did one. You can add that to the end.